been here before. Today I have a special guest. Her name is Jennifer Fernjack. Uh, Jennifer is the survivor of a brain tumor, and earlier in 2021, she published a book titled Greater Than the Power and Strength of Emotional Grit. Uh, the book chronicles the journeys and learnings of herself and others, and full disclaimer, she interviewed me as one of the subjects in her book. So uh, we will talk about that, but first, uh, Jennifer, tell me a little bit about yourself, who you are, where you're from, your profession, anything to help us know you a bit as a person as we begin to talk about your journey. Sounds good. Well, thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate that, Garrett. Um, You know, I'm from northern Minnesota. It's a small mill town called Cloquet. It's about 20 minutes shy of Duluth, kind of by Lake Superior. And by growing up in this small community, I basically learned a, a lesson of when you can't not experience something, you figure out the how. So whether it was Minnesota's cold winters <laughs> or other things in life, I just was raised in that environment. Uh, for the last 30 years, though, I've lived in the Twin Cities. Uh, so right now I'm currently in a suburb of Minneapolis called Spring Park. And uh, so I, I'm continuing with that same mindset and uh, any anything that life throws my way. Um, for my day job, I work in the financial services industry as a compliance officer, but in my personal life, I do public speaking in tandem uh, with my book that I wrote about emotional grit. Wonderful. Uh, so this spring, you'll be coming up on six years, I think, since you were diagnosed with, I'm sure I'm going to massacre this, but meningioma. Meningioma, yep. A tumor uh, that develops from the membrane that surrounds the brain. And I believe also can happen with the spinal cord. Um, as I was doing some reading on this, um, it's it's a tumor that sounds like it grows really gradually and often without causing any symptoms. So I was curious uh, how you were made aware that this was something that you were in fact battling. So yes, it, it's called the meningioma because the tumor is located, at least mine, for example, in the outer lining of the brain, which is called the meninges. And so I had no symptoms that I was aware of for years while this thing was growing slowly, not, not even so much as a, a bad headache to speak of. Uh, no motor skill problems, no speech impediments, you know, nothing. Um, but in the spring of 2016, I had my annual eye exam to get my contact prescription renewed. And that's when my eye doctor, I'm um, acting on a hunch, her words, not mine. Uh, she said, you know, Jennifer, for the second year in a row, you didn't do as well on one of your peripheral vision exams. I want you to see a specialist. And I didn't think twice about it because I, I still have peripheral vision, but I thought, okay, I'll, I'll go to the specialist. And uh, the specialist in turn ran more tests and then took pictures of the backs of my eyes. And he also acted on a hunch. And his, again, his words too, not mine. And he said, you know, Jennifer, I think something is pushing on your optic nerve. I'd like you to have an MRI. And so I did just that the, uh, the Friday of Memorial Day weekend in 2016. And the very next day, that's when I got the ominous phone call. And uh, it was the eye specialist with the results of the MRI and he said, Jennifer, I, I'm afraid I have some bad news for you. It appears as though you have a brain tumor. And it, literally, it was almost as though we were talking about a third party because I, like I said, I couldn't feel any symptoms of anything. And the thought is that that tumor could have been growing for, for years, if not decades. And people aren't sure what causes meningioma tumors, but the numbers do show that they're more prevalent in females. And so my aunt had one as well. So it's, it's kind of strange that they you know, hit two people in the same family. But of course, we're, we're curious as to, as to why. 
Um, mine was in the part of my head uh, that's called the cavernous sinus, which is basically by my left temple. And that's where the carotid artery is, the optic nerve, the uh, uh, pituitary gland. Um, so that's, that's where mine was discovered. And um, I'm so grateful that both of the eye doctors acted on a hunch. Yeah. Wow. I mean, and it's the fact that you went forward. I know so many people maybe just hear that and like, oh, okay, so the doctor said this, but nobody's really sure of anything. Maybe I'll just not do it. Right. Like, I mean, right. he, he could have done, yeah, I could have made your decision, but you, you chose to move forward and well, what a difference that made for you. Well, exactly. And it also helped that I had gone and, and I continue to go to the same um, uh, eye doctor uh, for the last 20 years. So she knows that when I do the tests at her, at her office, that I take them seriously. And so she knew that when I just didn't do as well for two years in a row, she thought, you know, I think something's up because she knows that when I, when I do those tests and they're reading exams that she administers, I, I try to be very compliant with it, which I guess explains why I work as a compliance officer as part of my day job. Cause that's just part of who I am. I cross my T's and dot my I's right. and I just, I, I feel incredibly fortunate um, that both the eye doctor and the eye specialist acted on hunches. Sure. So you get the diagnosis and obviously the next thing is surgery, correct? Yeah. Well, yes and no. Um, the, the key thing was that with, with a brain tumor like that, um, there's a lot of ambiguity because you can't test it outwardly to see if it's cancerous. And thankfully, thankfully it's not, I'm very grateful for that. But you know, initially they weren't sure. Um, on top of that, my neurosurgeon wanted me to have a number of functional MRIs where I was basically in an MRI machine for, I want to say probably about an hour each time. And I had an IV of dye in my arm that's called contrast. And that contrast was used to give the surgeon uh, more clarity with the images of my, of my brain that were produced. That way he had a better idea of how to get in there and, and cut the tissue and do the least amount of damage. So even though I got my diagnosis that Memorial Day weekend, my surgery wasn't until that August. So there were, there were a few months in between. And again, because it was growing for so many years and because my kind of tumor grows so slowly, thankfully it was in a location where it was okay to wait a few months before having it, having the actual surgery. And I, I should note that even though my, my tumor is not cancerous, the surgeon opted to uh, remove half of it and the remaining half he left behind because it was too dangerous to, to try to take it out because it, it's, it's literally partially encasing the carotid artery. So um, he, instead of, even though it's not cancerous, he chose to have me get radiation treatments for the remaining cells with the hope of, of killing them. And so for about, oh, I'd say just over five years now, um, yeah, five years, I've been doing annual MRIs. And thankfully, there's been no evidence of any kind of regrowth. So now I can wait and do the next one 18 months from now. Um, so I, I'm just very, very grateful for the technology and, and the medical expertise that I have had access to. It's a huge blessing. Okay, so that brings up a couple of questions for me, actually, in what you just said. First, the question is, you find out at the end of May of surgery in August, what, what is filling your thoughts those couple of months in between? Fair question. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting because oftentimes with any kind of a medical diagnosis, people tend to concentrate on the physicality of it, but there's also a lot of psychology and emotion that comes with it. And so the, the very same day that I got my diagnosis over the phone, um, even though I was very composed when I was talking to the eye specialist about the, uh, the diagnosis, uh, the emotion of everything hit me when I got off the phone. 
And I, I literally dropped to my knees and I, I, I then curled up in a little ball on my bedroom floor and I, I began to sob. And literally within like 10 seconds, my mind went from zero to 60, you know, as, as I thought, am I going to go blind? And I wondered, am I never going to get married again? And I, I wondered if I was going to die. And it's like my mind just was kind of spinning. And as I laid there and just sobbed, I thought to myself, you know what? I, I can't let this consume me. And then I thought, actually, I won't let it consume me. So I got out my pad of paper and a pen again, and I literally made a list of reasons why it's positive to have a brain tumor. And I know that that sounds really counterintuitive, <laughs> but it was almost like I was craving a sense of control. Like I, I wanted to have a voice and how I was perceiving things. And because literally when you feel like you're drowning, you just want to keep your head above water and you'll do whatever it takes. And so when I made this list of reasons why it's positive <laughs> to have a brain tumor, um, some of the things I wrote were tongue in cheek, uh, other things were somewhat serious. And so I started out by writing things like, you know, maybe I'll lose some weight. And then I wrote, uh, maybe I'll meet a hot single doctor. <laughs> and then I got a little bit more serious though. And I wrote such things as um, uh, a good reminder to count blessings and good excuse to reach out to people I haven't seen in a while. And then I ended my list, I, I believe, with a um, good excuse to eat dessert first. <laughs> and um, so, uh, and for people who know me, that's not, not going to surprise them because I have a bit of a sweet tooth. But, but uh, as I mentioned or alluded to, I wasn't in denial of my circumstance. I just wanted that perceived sense of control. And I later learned that when you have a mindset of gratitude, so not just happiness, but actual gratitude, it literally can, can uh, reduce stress hormones and influence the feel-good chemical of the brain, feel-good chemicals of the brain. So dopamine, serotonin, endorphins, things like that. And so that took the edge off my experience. And between that, that time of that ominous diagnosis and then the surgery a few months later, there were other times when, I, when I'd be laying in bed at night and my mind would just begin to spin again. And I, you know, I, I would think to myself, am I gonna go bankrupt from medical bills? And again, my, my, my mind would just get the best of me. And so as my eyes would begin to fill with tears, I would think to myself, okay, Jen, you can't not experience this, figure out the how. And so I would switch gears a little bit and um, I would begin to count blessings. And as I laid there, I, I would think to myself, I'm so grateful for access to good healthcare. I'm so grateful for supportive family and friends. Yeah, I mean, there's just, I'm, I'm so grateful that I had to go in for my contact appointment. Otherwise the tumor probably would have kept growing until it was a huge problem. Um, so it's by, by counting blessings and again, having that mindset of gratitude, um, that made a, a huge difference in just kind of how I perceive things. And, um, people will ask me sometimes, well, well, Jen, you know, some people oftentimes will, will take for granted the access to healthcare that we have. How did you happen to think, oh, I'm so grateful for it. And the, the reason why, besides the obvious, because it, it is something that we should be grateful for, but part of what fueled me was um, a number of years before that, my mom was in Haiti on a mission trip. And that's when they had a huge earthquake that happened. And I'm very grateful to say that, that she's fine, but she uh, went back there uh, a few weeks later and began to volunteer to um, just help people in this uh, medical tent. And she shared with me when she got home that there were people who would walk for miles with their kids for help. And they might say things like, could you please save my daughter? Or could you please help my son? And my mom knew that if they were here, you could actually you could actually treat the underlying problems. 
Whereas there, after a natural disaster, you more or less could just treat the symptoms. So for me to have access to good healthcare, I mean, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for that. And that helped curtail my uncertainties and my, and my worries. Pretty amazing stuff. Yeah, that's, that is incredible. Um, and thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you about that. Gratitude can, can change your whole mindset and um, mm-hmm. definitely get you through things that, that you might not otherwise think that you can get through. Mm-hmm. Um, so you still have half of this tumor inside of you and does what, I guess, how do you, how does that make you feel that it's that, that it's still there? You know, it's, it's one of those things that because I can't see it, you know, I, I don't think about it all the time, but because of the fact that I've written my book and I do public speaking about just having my brain tumor and, and the, and the fact that it's, given me a, a renewed lease on life because I'm grateful for little things like seeing green grass because I can still see or, or hearing birds sing. I'm, I'm grateful that I can still hear and um, just things that I would normally take for granted. Um, it, it's, it's given me a just kind of an enhanced appreciation for things. And it's also something that, that I know that there are no guarantees that, that at some point there won't be some kind of regrowth or that maybe the tumor won't somehow um, return. But it's also one of those things that I, I guess for me personally, I would rather try to concentrate on the things that I know rather than the things that I can't control or the what ifs that are out there. And so I, I'm also a firm believer that for me personally now, that even though I can't control the quantity of my life, I can still try to influence the quality of it. And that's why I'll, I'll try to do things on my bu- on my bucket list, <laughs> or I'll or I'll try to to do things like spend time with my grandma, like playing cards with her, <laughs> or playing Scrabble with her because it's quality time. Or uh, you know, other people who I who I care about, whether it's family or friends, it just makes you cherish stuff. So it's I, I know that it's still in there, <laughs> and I know that uh, there could be some issues in the future, but. I'm trying to concentrate on quality, not quantity of life. Um, What were your expectations for recovery and did, did it meet them? Or if not, what did you experience that you didn't expect to? You know, to be honest, I wasn't quite sure what to expect in terms of recovery because of the fact that I had been warned going into surgery uh, as I signed the paperwork and had conversations with people at the hospital that that there, there could be complications. I mean, I, I knew going in that I might not come out. And so um, I, I was also warned that uh, during the surgery, I, I could have had a blood clot. I could have had a stroke. I could have gone blind. So, so it's, it, it's also one of those things too, where knowing the things that could have happened, but didn't, it gives me an appreciation for um, just things that I am experiencing and going, you know what? Yeah, this isn't ideal, but at least it's not that. So like, 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 for example, um, my neurosurgeon had to cut my trigeminal nerve, which is a nerve that runs, um, over, like over your eyebrow, across your cheek, and then down your chin. So it's like, it's like a a three pronged fork. He had to cut through that in order to get into my temple to, to, um, do the surgery. And so to this day, my, my cheek is numb because because that nerve was damaged. And so, um, it's something that, if I, whether I'm smiling or chewing or, or coughing or yawning, or even just standing here, it, it, it just, it feels like I've had like a Novocaine shot at the dentist every day. 
And um, sometimes if I get kind of down about it, I'll think to myself, well, I, I used to also feel numb on my chin because of the nerve and numb on my forehead because of the nerve, but those parts healed. So, all right, I guess one, if I'll, I'll take one out of three, <laughs> yes, it's still numb across the cheek, but it's not numb on my forehead or my chin anymore. So I, I try to view the glasses half full. Um, also on top of that, because of the radiation sessions that I had, uh, the, the radiation, you know, didn't just hit my tumor in, in my head, it hit whatever, whatever was in its way as well. So it hit my, 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 uh, pituitary gland and my optic nerve and other things that were around it. And so, um, uh, it's, it's, it's things like you know, it, it affected my pituitary gland. So that works in tandem with your adrenal glands, which are on top of your kidneys. So now I have um, a compromised it's called a compromised fight or flight response system, meaning that if I was being chased by a bear <laughs> or if I was um, skiing and was crashing into a tree, I'm more susceptible to having a heart attack and having things affect me in a more heightened sense than somebody else because of the fact that my stress hormones are, are, are going to be out of balance because of this inefficiency. So there's certain things I have to be careful of with that as well. Um, I have a medical alert necklace that I have attached to my purse and I have uh, the medication um, that's in my purse um, in case I, I got in a car accident, you know, a, a first responder would see that and know to give it to me. So I've got that going on. Uh, my vision in my left eye, uh, the, the lower left quadrant isn't quite what it used to be. So I, I know that if I'm having dinner with somebody, um, I'll ask them to sit to my right because my, my, my right eye is, is better than my left eye. Um, yeah. So it's just, there, there are things like that that are just different um, but in the grand scheme of things, knowing what could have happened, I'll take this. <laughs> sure. D uh, did you ever have a why me moment? And if so, can you describe that moment for us? You know, I, I know that I'm going to be in the minority for sharing this, but I, but I honestly didn't. Um, I tried to look at it and I say, try meaning that so many things with medical scenarios are, it's an art, not a science. You know, you can, you can say something, you know, logically, but emotionally it affects you differently. Um, I guess I, I looked at it as I, I knew that a certain percentage of the population gets the tumor. And so I thought, okay, well, you know, I, I guess it's, and I'm, I'm one of them. <laughs> and, and my aunt was diagnosed with one a year ahead of me. So I know that there's something, even though supposedly it's not genetic, there's something going on there. Um, I, I guess I was just so grateful to get the help that I needed. And people will sometimes say to me, well, Jen, if your tumor was possibly growing for, for a couple decades or maybe even longer, don't you wish the tumor had been discovered say like 10 or 15 years ago? Cause it would have been smaller. And my response is always, well, no. <laughs> and that, that, that usually surprises people. And when people ask me, well, why is that? I'll say because the, the, the technology to treat it would have been different 10 or 15 years ago. So I'll, I'll take it now. <laughs> so I, I really do try to attempt to do things in a positive light, even though sometimes it's not easy. Um, but yeah, I, and I guess because my aunt also had the same tumor, um, it didn't surprise me as much that I had one. Um, but yeah, but that doesn't mean that it's always easy. But yeah, I guess I, I just never really had that thought of why me because of the fact that she had one too. Sure. Okay. Um, I think I might know your answer to this next question. So I'm going to throw an audible with it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't mind. Uh, other than gratitude, 
what quality that you possess naturally do you think helped you manage this unexpected journey? I would say perspective. So um, a good a good example of this is there's a picture of me um, that I have in my book where you can see the stitches in my head. And I had probably a good seven or eight inches of stitches from the top of my head down to my left ear. And so and my, and my head was partially shaved where the stitches were as well. And then there's a second picture that was taken a few weeks later showing that the stitches were removed and that the hair was growing back a little bit. And as I showed one of the pictures to a friend of mine, he got kind of queasy and he was like, oh, Jen, no offense, but your picture is kind of grossing me out. And we, we laughed about it. But I thought, you know what, what a good example of perspective, because what was kind of creepy to him was actually beautiful to me because the picture shows I was healing. So I, I would say perspective is, is, is part of what's helped me. And I know just growing up in Northern Minnesota, uh, where you, you had to face a cold winter every year, um, there were things, I guess, kind of like the mindset that I was raised with, with both of my parents, they're, they're divorced, but they both have this mindset of grit. It's kind of like, you know, you, you can complain that your driveway has to be shoveled or you can just put on some boots and go do it. <laughs> and so, and so we, we just, we just did it. <laughs> and so I just learned, um, that some people who don't live here think, oh, how can you, how can you stand the cold? How can you endure it? When in reality for us, cause we're used to it there were things that I thought were benefits. I mean, if we, if we didn't have a ton of snow, we wouldn't have the water table to, to, to support all of our lakes, you know? And that's, that's what I was raised with was the perspective of we need the snow to make our lakes. So I think perspective is something that, that played a huge role in my experience too. You've mentioned other people during this conversation, and I'm wondering other than yourself, who do you think this journey has impacted the most and how? Good question. Hmm. I would have to say, um, just with the, with the public speaking that I've done to try to share the things that I've learned through my experience. And, and I, I try to show people that whether it's a medical scare like mine, or perhaps relationship stress or job issues or whatever, there's things in life that can help you that I learned through my experience. Um, people oftentimes uh, focus on the underlying patient or a survivor like myself, but I would say that caregivers, caregivers have surprised me the most because people don't realize that whether you're a nurse or a doctor or a dentist or clergy or uh, even, even like veterinarians, I mean, they get stressed out at their job too. Um, uh, first responders, parents, you name it, people don't realize that the caregiver gets affected by um, situations like mine as well. And so I've had people come up to me after I've been doing my public speaking and saying, thank you for including us. Because um, as a caregiver, it's possible to feel guilty. Like you might think to yourself, well, I should want to, I should want to take care of my loved one because, because they're my, my child or my spouse or my parent. Um, and that's true, but you only have so much energy <laughs> or you only have so much to give. And I want to show people that they're important as well. Not necessarily um, that you shouldn't be off the priority list. So caregivers, I would say, have have come out of the woodwork, um, and that that surprised me. So they benefited too. Wonderful. Uh, how has your experience affected how you view your role in this world? You know, it, I honestly believe that my story is bigger than I am. 
And I say that because I've seen the good that has come out of it. Um, just with, with, the, with the public speaking that I've done, um, there, and even now the, the book that I've written about emotional grit, um, I know that somebody wrote to me through my website, um, my, my jenniferfernjack.com website, um, and mentioned that they had bought my book because their spouse um, has cancer. And so every night, this woman reads the book to her husband as they fall asleep, just as a way to give him some hope. And so it's just um, stuff like that, you know, that, that makes me feel like I'm now making pain my purpose. Because if I can help other people through what I've experienced and what I'm experiencing and what I may experience in the future, it's like it's, it's given it, um, it, it almost somehow justifies it, you know, where I'll think to myself, you know, if, if I can, if I can spread some hope to other people and help them in their circumstance, then, um, I'm okay with what's happening to me because it's a lot of good is coming out of it for others as well. So I'm happy about that. Your book is called greater than the power and strength of emotional grit and it published earlier this year, 2021 at its core. What is the book about? Uh, two things. One is the, the whole notion of when you can't not experience something, you try to figure out the how. And the other is that a lot of people assume that being brave means you can't be afraid. When in reality, it means you could be afraid, but you're going to try to persevere anyway. And so, so I want people to cut themselves some slack. Like you don't have to be tough. You don't have to, you know, like keep your vulnerabilities to yourself and keep a stiff upper lip. No, it's okay to be afraid. We're human. But but when you can try to persevere anyway, that you can draw strength from that. And it, it's it's almost like a, I'll say to people, you know, rather than being intimidated by what you know may lie ahead for you, look at how far you've come. You know, like for me, when I I had radiation treatments 30 different times on my head, you know, and um what I did eventually is I made a chart where where each day that I had the radiation treatments, I would mark off on my chart that I finished that day. And rather than think to myself, oh, I've got 15 sessions left or, oh, I have 10 sessions left. I would think, no, I have 15 done or I have 20 done. Yeah. I, I would look backwards and, and see the something tangible to, to document progress. But, um, and uh, the, the, the good example that I have for people, as far as that uh, persevering anyway, mindset ties in with the title of the book, the whole idea of greater than. And greater than is from a math class. Do you remember back in like junior high and grade school where uh, there was a greater than and less than signs? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, they still stick. Yeah. <laughs> so so the, the example that I'll give people is that within a few months of me finishing my radiation treatments, I was invited to get on stage at my church to share my experience and just kind of how I got through it and and people would ask me ahead of time, well, Jen, how, how many people does your church seat? And I'm like, well, the sanctuary seats about a thousand people. And they would say, well, how many services are there? Well, there's four. Uh, plus they broadcast the service. Um, people see it online. So it was going to be thousands of people that were going to watch. And so people would say to me, well, aren't you, aren't you like nervous talking in front of so many people? And of course I was going to be nervous, you know? So then when, when I would tell people that, they would say, well, if you're going to be nervous, how are you going to do it? And without missing a beat, I would say, my desire to help others is greater than my fear of the stage. 
it doesn't mean I can't be afraid of the stage. It just means I'm going to do it anyway. Mm-hmm. And so I try to, again, share that with people about the whole idea of cut yourself some slack. It's, it's okay to be nervous or scared or, or just kind of um, feeling sad about something, but trying to persevere anyway is, is, um, is, is a big deal. So you, you could have been diagnosed and had surgery and had treatment and then sort of just moved on with life, but yet you're doing this. And um, I guess I'm curious as what motivates you to be doing this uh, versus not just, um, I don't want to, the easier, is it the easy, is it easier to just kind of, kind of go on with with life and, and, and not sort of have this, this, but but there's also a lot of value in for you, obviously, in uh, in sharing your story. What is the mo- what is the motivation? What is the fire that that keeps lit? I would say that that what what fuels it is just the the reaction that I've gotten from people, where I know that I'm making a difference, and even though I can't change somebody's circumstance any more than I can necessarily change mine, um, I can still help people and help myself as far as how they might view things or how, or how they might um, just kind of experience things. And I know a few years ago, I was on a, on a flight where I was sitting by a guy who served in Vietnam and he had shared with me that he knew medics during the war who had soldiers who were dying in their arms. Um, And they could tell a difference in their vital signs. Once those soldiers heard the sounds of the helicopters coming to save them hope can affect you physically because in in the case of those soldiers who were, who were dying, once they heard those Huey helicopters that were coming, uh, it meant that that either supplies were coming or meant they were going to go to a hospital or maybe they were even going to go home and that hope affected them physically. And I can also tell that when I'm um, working with people and sharing things that I learned and trying to give them ideas for their own circumstance, um, I, I can tell once that light bulb, when the light bulb goes off in somebody's eyes, and I can tell that I'm making a difference. That to me is worth all the hours that I spent writing my book. I mean, it took almost three years to write my book, uh, pulling research and interviewing people around the country and putting things together. Um, but but when you can see that it's making a difference for people, that that fuels me. That's it's it, it was worth every every uh, ounce of time that I had that I put into it. You talked to many people when you assembled the content for this book. Mm-hmm. What did that process teach you? You know, it, it's, it's taught me that, uh, that some of life's treasures can be in the most unexpected places and, and that you never know. Uh, well, like, like in the case of that guy on my flight who served in Vietnam um, I, I could have just looked at him at, at face value and thought, oh, he's traveling just like me, whether it's for business or he, maybe he's a tourist. And it happens that he likes, you know, cookies versus peanuts you know, or whatever it was that Delta was serving and just kind of taking things at a, at a surface level. But here it turns out that I was sitting by somebody who not only served overseas, but had these amazing stories. So it's, um, it's, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of the exact metaphor, but somebody else told me this metaphor a few years ago about you know, without, without any kind of um, little grain of uh, just whether it's sand or anything like that, there, there would be no pearl, you know? So, 
So some of the most beautiful stories that I've heard are from people who did have some kind of a traumatic experience and just what, what, what came out of it. And whether it's their renewed zest for life or whether it's their appreciation for little things or realizing that it's quality, not quantity of life that, that we could try to influence. Um, it, it's a beautiful thing. So it's, it, it taught me a lot about that, about you never know who's, who's in the crowd. Uh, I, I know one time in particular, I was giving my speech in downtown Minneapolis. And when I was done, there was a woman who approached me who had tears coming down her face. And she said, um, I was diagnosed recently with a meningioma tumor. Thank you for sharing your story. Well, I had no clue that there was somebody in the audience who had the same kind of diagnosis as me. So it's, you never know who's listening or, or how they can benefit from things or where they can draw strength from. Um, it's a, a good reminder that regardless of who you are or where you're from, the best things in life are free. And when you can share that kind of a uh, mindset with somebody, it's, it's a beautiful thing. I have one final, I, I guess call it a thinking question. <laughs> yeah, what, yeah. What's uh, what's one takeaway you want people to draw out from your journey? You know, I I think it just dovetails with, with what I was just saying about how the best things in life are free. Um, I, I learned through my experience that whether it is something like gratitude, being able to reduce stress hormones and influencing the good chemicals of the brain, I mean, gratitude is free. Uh, there are other things in life as well, like, like music. I mean, there are study, um, studies out there that show that people who have Parkinson's disease, if they listen to music that's relevant to them, like say, for example, music from back when they were in college or back during their, maybe like maybe as part of their courtship back when they were married or, or getting married or engaged uh, decades ago, if they hear that music that's relevant to them and they dance to it, they're less apt to shake. Because that music can increase their dopamine levels and help them improve their their uh, their dexterity and their and their moves and their overall gait. Um, laughter. When people say that laughter is the best medicine, there's an ounce of truth to that, and that's because laughter can also influence those feel good chemicals of the brain. So I'll recommend to people that if you're stressed out and driving to work, or if maybe you had a an argument with your spouse, if you can use your smartphone and get on Pandora. But go to a, a, a comedian's channel, find a comedian you like, and that laughter can help help lower your stress. Uh, pets are the same way. Um, I know that there are VA hospitals around the, ho around the country who have pets for people with PTSD to help with the, the physicality of their condition. Um, there are also courthouses that have what are called courthouse canines. And those are our dogs oftentimes, sometimes uh, rabbits as well or other pets that when little kids or vulnerable adults are afraid to testify on the witness stand, they're more apt to testify if they can sit there and pet a dog because it's lowering stress hormones. So it's things that are hidden in plain sight like that in, in everyday life that uh, can add a lot of value. So yeah, I, I would say the, the best things in life are free. Jennifer, how can people get a copy of your book? So at my website, uh, jenniferfernjack.com, I have links on there. You, you can either buy the book directly on the site, or my site has links to uh, Target's website, um, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Those are all on there as well. And they can take you directly to those sites to buy the book there too. But it's, it, it's a pretty amazing thing. And I, I would welcome for people to not only read it, but reach out to me um, through my site and uh, let me know um, what resonates with them.
Jennifer, thank you for your time. Again, your book is called Greater Than the Power and Strength of Emotional Grit. Um, I really appreciate you uh, taking that time to talk with us today and sharing your story. Sure. Well, thank you for having me on the call. I appreciate it, Garrett.